we've been in this series uh, looking at mercy and justice issues for the past couple weeks. Uh, we've got this week and then one more. Uh, and today we are going to talk about uh, this topic of the sanctity of life, but, but look at that very broadly and, and comprehensively. Um, today is recognized in many Christian churches and many Christian denominations uh, as something called Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, and the reason is, is because this Tuesday, uh, January 22nd, that will be the 46th anniversary uh, of the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade, a very famous case that has since had a, a very massive, uh, a very tragic impact on the lives of, of millions of people, both unborn and, and born. Uh, for most, uh, the primary focus of Sanctity of Life Sunday is the topic of abortion. Uh, and this is a topic that we have as a church explored together. Uh, many times during the month of January, we devote an entire Sunday to that, and we've had people come from Capital Area Pregnancy Center, one of our partner organizations, to talk about that specifically. Uh, because it is such an important subject that is still uh, a very present crisis, uh, a very present tragedy in our society, uh, we'll talk about it some again this morning. But it's also essential as Christians that we uphold the full implications of the sanctity of life. And so, as we'll celebrate a day in his honor tomorrow, I'm reminded of the words of Martin Luther King Jr., who once wrote, there are no gradations in the image of God. There are no gradations in the image of God. And he was, of course, referring primarily to this beautiful truth that, that men, women, and children of all races, of all ethnicities, are equally image bearers of God. And that some people are not more of an image bearer than others. That same truth applies to any topic of the sanctity of life. All human life is created in God's image. All human life is precious to God. And so that certainly includes the unborn, those that the psalmist says in Psalm 139 are known and are formed and are loved by God before they ever exit the womb, before they ever live in this world among the rest of us. It also includes those outside the womb who likewise find themselves in very vulnerable positions. And so you just heard Scott share some about the current state of homelessness and poverty and addiction in our community. And so here's the question for us this morning. Do we see caring for these vulnerable men and women and children as an equally important sanctity of life issue? Do we see it as an equally important sanctity of life issue? And not to mention what we won't even get to really explore much this morning, but those with mental and physical disabilities, those who face constant sickness or terminal illness and are increasingly in our society being given options and encouragement for physician-assisted suicide and, and euthanasia. I've been referencing a, a pastor and an author in this series named Scott Sauls. Uh, in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, he has this great chapter that's called For the Poor or for the Unborn. For the poor or for the unborn, question mark. That's the title of his chapter. And it drives at the, the heart of this very topic. As Christians, do we uphold the value and the sanctity of all life, of every life? And how do we care for and speak for, for all vulnerable people, people vulnerable in different ways without disregarding, without undermining the value of life for any one particular subset of that? So it's probably already obvious, but this has to go beyond mere politics. It has to go beyond political parties. Generally speaking, the, the political right is known as the pro-life party. But to them, critics would say, well, whose life are we talking about? Are you considering life, the life of the mother and the father 
The political left is known in our day as the pro-choice party. And to them, critics would say, well, whose choice? Whose choice? There's another life involved that you're not giving any choice to whatsoever. So the right, generally speaking again, is known for championing the rights of unborn lives. The left is known more broadly in our society for championing the rights of poor and vulnerable people outside the womb. And so Scott Sauls in his chapter writes this. He says, both sides claim they are upholding the sanctity of human life. Both sides claim that their utmost concern is for, quote unquote, the least of these, referencing Jesus in Matthew 25. Both sides believe without a doubt that Jesus is on their side. And both sides believing that they possess the moral high ground launch verbal and digital grenades at the other for having such a low regard for human dignity. Is there another way? Is there another way? Is there a way to consistently value life? Is there a way to be a voice for the unborn and for the poor? As Christians, we believe, yes, there is another way. There is a way to do this. Why? Because to this, we have been called by God himself. But it will require far more than affiliation with a political party. It will require heart-level compassion and heart-level boldness. It will require a robust understanding of the sanctity of life and a nuanced kind of clarity about what that means in complicated and broken situations. And it will require not only that we proclaim truth, but that unlike the Pharisees that were rebuked by Jesus, that we actually lift a finger to help those under heavy burdens. In summary, it will require the grace of God. It will require the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to over and again shape us and compel us and sustain us as those that uphold the sanctity of every life. And one of the texts in the New Testament that both reminds us of the great work that God has done and then calls us to our own work in light of that comes from James, the very end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. I'll start in James chapter one, verse 27 and read through chapter two. Verse 13. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Chapter two, verse one. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, pour out now upon us wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and our minds might be open to receive all that leads to life and all that leads to holiness. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, Three big ideas here that James, the brother of Jesus, is writing about. Uh, We'll look briefly at each one of those and then the implications for that as those who are called to champion the sanctity of, of every life. So they are true religion, the sin of partiality, and mercy over judgment. First, let's talk about true religion. Uh, About a year ago, we walked through uh, the book of James as a church. And if you were with us, then you might recall from that study uh, that James emphasizes over and again us being both hearers and doers of the word of God. So echoing what what many prophets said centuries before James, and then echoing what his half-brother Jesus said only a few years before, James says that what God desires of us is not empty religious activity and ritual and, and rituals and traditions. What he desires from us are lives that demonstrate that we actually love God and that we actually love others. Lives that demonstrate that, that our hearts have been so changed by God that we are both hearers of the word and doers of the word. And in that same vein, James writes here in chapter 1, verse 27, that religion which is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Notice there are two massive components there. One of them is personal holiness, keeping unstained from the world. And so James would say, James says here, our religion is empty and worthless if we are willingly persisting in patterns of sin while proclaiming at the same time to follow Jesus. In the verse prior, James refers specifically to the tongue or ways that we might sin against God and other people with with our words. But the same thing is true for any kind of sin pattern that might surface in our lives. And we see here from James and from all throughout the testimony of Scripture that that Christians are not by any means perfect people. Christians are not perfect people. They are repentant people. And they are people who, by the grace of God, pursue faithfulness to the ways of Jesus. We, We do seek to follow Jesus faithfully, and where we fall short, wherever that might be, we repent of that. That's one component of true religion. The other is to pursue mercy and justice for the vulnerable, for the vulnerable. And so this one verse, James 1.27, lays out a really essential both and of the Christian life. The history of the church and the current state of the church seems to be the case that we have to choose between those things. And it's filled with examples of different tribes, some that emphasize the personal holiness part, some that emphasize the mercy and justice for the vulnerable. But true religion, James says, is both and. It is both personal holiness and showing mercy and justice to the vulnerable. And so it's this horribly false dichotomy. It's this lie that you have to pick one of those things over the other or emphasize one of those things over the other. Both of them are part of, as he writes in verse 12, the law of liberty. In other words, both of them are part of of what life, a genuinely freed life, looks like when when we experience and when we live out the freedom that has been purchased for us by the work of Jesus. 
True religion is to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. And James speaks specifically about widows and orphans because in the first century, in first century Palestine where he's writing, they were among the most vulnerable people in that society. It's an author named Nicholas Wolterstorff, and I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. He writes in his book, Justice, about what he terms the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. Four groups of people that are emphasized over and over again in Scripture as those uh, particularly in need, particularly vulnerable people in society. And the quartet of the vulnerable are these. They are the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. The poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. And the more that you read and, and really become familiar with the words of God in Scripture, the more obvious it becomes how much God's heart is for women and men and children in these vulnerable places. The more clear it becomes how many of God's commands, what he calls his people to, has to do with loving and caring for and pursuing mercy and justice for these vulnerable types of people. And so as it pertains to the sanctity of all life, think about how this calls us to be comprehensive. Widows and orphans. Vulnerable women and vulnerable children. According to a report released in 2014, 75% of all abortions were performed on women who earned less than or up to twice the official poverty level. So the government sets a poverty level, twice that number, 75% of abortions were performed on women that earned less than or up to that number. And as any of the staff or the advocates or the volunteers at places like Morningstar or Capillary Pregnancy Center would tell you, one of the reasons that women seek abortions is because they're not in a stable relationship. They're not coming from a stable family or a support system. And so we must never, as people, be those that overlook their vulnerability. We must never overlook the sanctity of their lives. And at the very same time, we must pursue mercy and justice for vulnerable children, born and unborn. And we see Jesus uphold the value of young lives. He says, and it's recorded in several gospels, he says, let the little children come to me. And when he says that in his ministry, it shocks the disciples, it shocks the onlookers that hear him say that. Why? Because they didn't value the lives of children enough. They had introduced, to borrow the language from Martin Luther King, a gradation to the image of God. Adults might be full image bearers of God. For them, adult males who are also Jewish might be full image bearers of God. Children, women, other types of people weren't quite that, weren't quite a full image bearer. No one, no one in any society is more vulnerable than those who have no way to speak up for themselves. And so children, especially those unborn, are certainly in that vulnerable of a place. And so in the kingdom of God, it is a justice issue to be a voice for the voiceless. That's true religion. Second, James writes about the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. You heard Nate share this uh, as he led us into worship this morning. Every mercy and justice issue that we talk about this month is an image of God issue. It's an image of God issue. That is, our most fundamental reason for caring about these things has everything to do with this beautiful reality that human beings are those created by God in his own image and therefore worthy of dignity, worthy of respect, worthy of love and care. 
partiality, favoritism toward one group or one person over another. It's directly opposed to this. Because what partiality does is it creates a hierarchy that attributes more worth and respect to certain image bearers over and against others. It introduces that gradation of the image of God into the equation. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, James highlights here how holding faith in Jesus is incompatible with partiality. And I love how this one amplified translation of this verse captures the the overall tone of what James is writing in chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, Are you really trying to combine faith in Jesus Christ, our glorified Lord, with the worship of rank? In other words, we, we as Christians are those who believe there is one glorious one. There is one glorious one, and he is the one who became poor, made himself nothing so that we might be reconciled to God and to one another. So belief in this Lord of glory for Christians, it's incompatible with giving different amounts of glory to different kinds of people. And the scenario that James writes about is this. Two different men come into a gathering of Christians, probably a small house church kind of uh, atmosphere. One of them is obviously wealthy, the other obviously poor. And the wealthy man is given this preferential treatment and respect. The poor man is told to stand off to the side or to sit at the feet of the one who is there, which is a a picture of superiority. It's a picture of of dominance. In chapter 2, verse 4, James refers to this as making distinctions and becoming judges with evil thoughts. Making distinctions, becoming judges with evil thoughts. And this highlights... One of the biggest issues with partiality, both in James's day and in ours, and it's this, that we make all kinds of assumptions about why rich people are rich and why poor people are poor. And it leads us to treat them very differently. It leads us to become judges with evil thoughts. Why are poor people poor? Why are rich people rich? Your unfiltered, unevaluated visceral kind of answer to that question will almost certainly reveal the partiality that exists deep in the places of your heart. Generally speaking, we either carry a prosperity theology or a poverty theology. So prosperity theology says that that it's righteous people who are wealthy and unrighteous people who are poor. And so therefore, if you are poor, it's because you are unwise, lazy, or addicted. If you're wealthy, it's because you work hard and you don't make bad decisions. Poverty theology takes that and flips it around the other way. It says that the poor are the righteous ones. They are the ones who have forsaken the trappings of material wealth. And it's the wealthy who are unrighteous because they've accumulated their wealth through exploitation and through oppression and and use their wealth selfishly for their own gain. Both of these paradigms are reductionistic. They're both reductionistic because scripture gives us four categories and not two. Right? Some wealthy people are righteous and some wealthy people are unrighteous. Some poor people are righteous, and some poor people are unrighteous. And our attempts to determine who is who based on something superficial like clothing or anything outward will guaranteed make us judges with evil thoughts. In verse 8, James speaks of the royal law. And it's his shorthand way of referencing the Old Testament law as fulfilled and as interpreted by Jesus. So when Jesus was asked, uh, what commandment is the greatest? What he affirmed, he affirmed was the summary given by this teacher of the law that said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. And neighbor, as Jesus goes on to explain in Luke chapter 10 in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is a huge definition. 
it's a huge definition. It's not just the people that we want it to include, it's the people we don't want it to include. And it includes this quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. Partiality, however we would show it, immediately sabotages neighbor love. It immediately makes us transgressors, those who sin by violating this royal law of love for our neighbor. And so esteeming some as more worthy of respect and love is to sin not only against that person, him or herself, but against the God in which that person's image is made, in whose image that person is made. So as it pertains to the sanctity of every life, are you inclined to show partiality? Do you champion the unborn without real regard for the mother or the father? Without regard for the reason that she is seeking an abortion in the first place? Without consideration for what that, what that child's life will look like after he or she enters the world? Or on the other hand, do you champion the rights of a woman to choose, even if it's specifically because she is in such a vulnerable spot? Do you champion the rights of a woman to choose without regard for the voiceless life that is inside her? As Scott Sauls points out, this has to go beyond just the labels of pro-life and pro-choice. It has to. He writes, to paraphrase him, both sides are right when they advocate for the image bearer of God in a weak and vulnerable and distressed place. Both are wrong when they give preferential treatment with partiality and dismiss the other. So as we, speak, as we seek to be people of mercy and justice in the world, remember that the, the law of God, the whole counsel of God, it's an interconnected whole. And so for us to pick and choose which pieces we're gonna care about and pursue and to uphold is to fall at all of it, is to, verse 10, become accountable, become guilty to all of it. We don't get to pick and choose. Generally speaking, theologically and culturally conservative Christians will accurately champion, will accurately uphold the law of God when it comes to things like sexual ethics or seeing abortion as a violation of the sanctity of life. But these same Christians are, again, generally speaking, it's not a, a hard and fast rule, it's a generalization, are often guilty of giving themselves a pass on the kinds of compassion and generosity and care that we're called to show to vulnerable people outside of the womb. And that is just as much a violation of the law of God. It's just as much a violation of the law of God. Theologically and culturally progressive Christians often have this the other way around. They'll, they'll pursue faithfulness to the law of God toward the poor, toward the oppressed, but they'll try to downplay sexual ethics. They'll try to downplay abortion. And so, may we say it with tears in our eyes, but inflammatory as this language is, abortion is a form of murder. It is. It, it is to take a life made in the image of God. For the vast majority of the cases that, of abortion that are not dealing with rape and incest and, and a, a health risk to the mother herself. And so being people of mercy and justice demands that we, that we not turn a blind eye to that. Whichever way you find yourself more prone to partiality, whichever group of vulnerable people you're more naturally inclined to love and to care for, remember that the law of God will call you to care for all of them. To see the image of God in all of them. To uphold the sanctity of every life. And I'm sure like you, I am under no delusion about the complexity of this and the conflicts that this creates. At the end of the day, in any given situation, there's no way that everybody gets what they want. 
caring for vulnerable unborn will come directly into conflict with what feels like care for vulnerable women and men outside the womb and vice versa. But as Christians, it is our, it is our command, it is our call to always reject partiality, to make sure that our views, our advocacy, our counsel is always fueled by God's heart for the vulnerable. And that leads to the last point. James concludes by writing about mercy over judgment. Christians must always be those that lead with mercy. Showing mercy to the vulnerable, to those in need, is not an optional part of the Christian life. And there are some really hard words, some hard passages in Scripture directed at those who would neglect mercy for other image bearers. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. Matthew 18, Jesus tells this parable about an unmerciful servant who upon receiving the king's forgiveness of this massive debt, one that he never could have hoped to repay in all of his lifetime, turns around and immediately refuses to forgive the debt of a fellow servant that is minuscule by comparison. And when word gets back around to the king, he throws that unforgiving servant in prison for his refusal to show the same kind of mercy that he himself received. In Matthew 25, which you heard Scott reference earlier, Jesus says that on the day of judgment, which James also is alluding to here in verse 12, it will be how we respond to those deemed unworthy and unlovable by society. It's on that basis we will either be commended or condemned by Jesus. And here in James chapter 2, verse 13, James says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Why? Why does he say that? Not because we have to earn God's mercy, but because in, in neglecting to show mercy, we prove that we have missed the essence of the gospel. We prove that we really haven't grasped the foundation of our faith, which is that we are saved not because we are more worthy or more deserving than some other person, but solely because God has been merciful to us in Christ. Tim Keller says it this way, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am and so can anyone else. That is the language of a moralist's heart. I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal with all other people. That is the language of a Christian's heart. A sensitive, Keller goes on to say, a sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of the grace of God. So a Christian is one who has received the grace and mercy of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If that's not you, if that's not you, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know this morning that that grace and that mercy is offered to you. It's offered to you. Not after you clean your life up. Not after you get your life in, together and put all the things together in the life that you want to. It's offered to you now. Solely by faith in the midst of your life not being put together. Solely by faith in the work of Jesus. And whether you're a Christian or not, if you've neglected the sanctity of life, where you've neglected the sanctity of, the li of life, unborn or poor or any other way, if you're here this morning and this is a really hard topic for you because you've had an abortion, or if this is a hard topic for you because you've been unloving and disdainful and hateful to the poor, I want you to know that there's grace and mercy for you too. There's grace and mercy for you too. 
from people in this church, there's mercy for you. Infinitely more importantly, there's grace and mercy to you from God. Christians are not perfect people. They are repentant people. And that's true regardless of how respectable or not respectable, quote unquote, our specific sins might be. For Christians, integrity, consistency calls us to be those who always lead with mercy. Mercy for vulnerable women, mercy for vulnerable children. Seeing the image of God in all created life means we champion the sanctity truly of every life, not just the lives that are more palatable or easier for us to love. And so I'll close with the words of a doctor who lives in the Nashville area in Tennessee. And he was asked to, how should Christians faithfully respond to sanctity of life issues? And and he, he took the opportunity as he was asked that to write a letter to his church. And he wrote this. As we fight about life in utero, let's not forget the person standing in front of us. In short, he goes on to say, I favor building community and dialogue that promotes a society where abortion, due to the love ready to be given to any child and any mother, is not merely illegal, but unthinkable. Not merely illegal, but unthinkable. That is to see the sanctity of every life. That is to be one who leads with mercy and longs to show mercy to vulnerable people, all types of vulnerable people. So in response to the mercy of God that is held out to you through the work of Christ, may we practice true religion. May we repent of our partiality. May our words, our actions, our advocacy, may our lives always lead with mercy. And may we Christians who speak the loudest against abortion also be the ones who speak the loudest for the poor and the homeless and the vulnerable in every sense. Not to shy away from either, not to shrink back from either, but truly to champion the sanctity of every life. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you have created us in your image and that is why life is precious. Before it would ever be precious to us, it's precious to you. And there are, Martin Luther King Jr. was spot on, there are no gradations to the image of God. So help us to be consistent, help us to be repentant of the ways that we are prone to introduce gradations to the image of God for the unborn or for the born. Make us people of those who champion the sanctity of every life, every type of vulnerable person. And in those places where the specific circumstance will create conflict and where not everybody will get what they want, may it always be said of us that we are leading with the mercy that we ourselves have received from Jesus. You have to do that work in us. And we're grateful now that we get to be reminded each and every week by coming to the table where you poured out your blood, offered your body in this greatest demonstration of mercy that we or anyone in the world has ever known. Thank you for that great work. Strengthen us now as we come. In your name we pray.